First Timothy chapter number three, and while you are turning there, I'd like you to go to Second Corinthians chapter number one as well. And there are so many addendums and offshoots, so many practical things that I'd like to be able to teach out of this passage of Scripture that relate to the relationship between the church and the pastor and the pastor and the church. It's just like there's so many practical things. And one of the things that I've thought of, that oftentimes churches are not equipped how to handle, and that is the selection of a pastor. And uh, I hope that in my lifetime, I don't have to, uh, I hope that you don't have to experience that. I'd just be tickled to death if the Lord would leave me here until I die. And secondly, I hope that that's a long ways away. (laughs) But at the same token, sometimes uh, because it's an uncomfortable topic for both pastors and flocks, sometimes the pastor doesn't teach the people uh, how to go through that process. And I'm certain that there are some practical things. I've never uh, had to be part of that process personally. I've had some uh, very close friends that have been part of it. I've talked to many, many preachers, and every church handles the process a little bit different. But the fact of the matter is, in my observation, most churches really don't have much of a clue what to do when they're faced with that kind of a situation. That's not our study tonight, but I believe that I'm going to give you some things from the Scripture that will certainly be relevant uh, if, God forbid, any of you would have to uh, be in that situation, whether you're a deacon, a leader, or just a, a, a faithful member who is part of the prayer team in uh, seeking God's will for those type of matters. 1 Timothy 3 and verses 1 down through verse number um, uh, 13 is all about the office of the bishop and the deacon. We just commonly refer to the bishop today as the pastor. And there are three different terms uh, for this particular uh, person or position. I'll talk more about that here in a minute. But um, that's specifically what we're talking about. Uh, Time permitting, we may look at a companion passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, that really gives some similar things, but it confirms and uh, some of the things that Paul uh, talks to Timothy about. Before we look at this, though, I'd like for you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 24, where Paul says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. One of the main things that a pastor does is to um, be a helper of your faith, not to have dominion over it, to be a helper of your joy. But there's also a big principle throughout the Scripture that the pastor is supposed to be an ensample to the flock, an example. And so, For many of you, as we start talking about the expectations of a good pastor, you may be thinking, well, what does this matter to me? You're maybe a lady, and we saw a couple weeks ago that you're never going to be a pastor if you're right with God. Or you may be a layperson, it's just like, I'm never going to be a preacher, why do I care about all of these things? Well, if the pastor is being an example, an example of what you ought to be, 
wouldn't you agree that if God says, I'm going to set a high example of the pastor, then that's something that all of God's people ought to aspire to. So all of these principles, you should certainly take into consideration that this is the kind of Christian that God wants me to be as well. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, and uh, for sake of time, I'm just going to take this a verse at a time rather than reading the entire passage and then backing up. And tonight, I really just want to focus on some terms and some principles and just, just teaching here tonight. Nothing profound, it's going to be really, really simple, but sometimes it's the simple things that get overlooked the most. All right, uh, verse number one, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, as I've said, there are three different terminologies, the term bishop, uh, the term pastor, and the term elder. All of these are used synonymously. You can see that the crossover, that God's talking about the same thing just from a different standpoint. The pastor is the function. That's the shepherd. He's shepherding the flock. And so that's what he does. The term elder is referring to the person and the quality of the person that he is. And uh, the term bishop is a reference to the office. So naturally, oh, and I meant to say this, the term elder, while there's not an age restriction on that, I think that naturally the person that meets all of these expectations is going to more than likely have some age and some experience under his belt before he's going to be at this place. You take some 20-year-old kid that's uh, just out of Bible school or whatever, uh, he's not going to be there. He may be a great preacher. He may be a good Christian. He may be exceptional for a 20-year-old kid. But let's face it, these expectations, and I like, I agree with what Brother Ben said last week. I, I'm not against calling these qualifications, but I don't, I think we got to be careful in viewing it as qualifications. I see it more as expectations or even go in a further step, qualities that make a pastor, a bishop, an effective bishop. Without these qualities, there's not going to be the right kind of effectiveness, okay? And the term deacons, we're going to see here later on in the chapter, and not much is said about the function of a deacon unless we reasonably understand in Acts chapter number 6 that those are indeed deacons. Now, the text in Acts 6 does not say that they were deacons. I, I believe that they were, but I could not prove that in a court of law. It's not a slam dunk, but... I think that it probably is a function, and so the deacon has always been someone who helps out the pastor or the man of God, frees them up so that they can focus on the spiritual aspects. They help do the things that they can do to free up the pastor to do the things that only he can do. And so it's a great, you know, having having various, having teamwork, like what Brother Chuck was talking about tonight, the teamwork of the ministry. We are a family, 
And uh, I think that a ministry that is built on one man is a ministry that's eventually going to collapse. And we see a lot of instability. I really like your focus last week on the term stability. I mean, the Holy Spirit just zeroed my heart in on that. And it helped remind me the value, the importance of stability. You know, we are not a ministry in a day and age where we're just, just, you know, setting records and just setting the world on fire, but we're not extremely high and we're not extremely low. But thank God for a ministry that for the last 50 plus years has had stability, not a bunch of doctrinal changes and going about with every wind of doctrine. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a little campaign or a little program here and there. We added Master Club, and we have Attraction Challenge and all of these things, but that's not what this church is built on. This church is built on the stability of the principles of this book right here. And it's not always exciting. It's not always emotional. But it's always helpful. This is what gets the job done, okay? So, it's a true saying. I, I, I thought about that. Nowhere else in the Bible or in Paul's writings did he preface what he had to say with this is a true saying. I'm not sure what to make of that. I don't think that Paul was saying that everything else I've said is not true. You know, yeah, sometimes we, we're kind of smart alecks, you know. Somebody says, hey, can I be honest with you? And you say, well, what, were you lying to me before? <laughs> I, I think it's an expression that what we're doing is we're putting focus, we're, we're highlighting what we're getting ready to say that, hey, this is true and you need to pay attention. And I think that's what Paul is saying. And uh, he says that if a man, look at it with me, verse one, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It is a good work. It is a joy and a privilege. And listen, sometimes pastors get beat up. And, you know, any preacher, if you're around them long enough, you're going to hear them whine a little bit from time to time. It gets, you know, it gets brutal trying to make everybody happy and, you know, getting up and being vulnerable. I, I have finally accepted the fact that every time that I preach, Every time that I pour myself out in a lesson or a sermon or any ministry whatsoever, when I get home, it's going to be a brutal battle between my ears, wondering, did I do a good job? Did I fail? Well, I wish I would have done this. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I preach so long? It is a brutal process. And everybody that's preached, you talk to them, they understand that. Other people can't. You're going to hear preachers whine from time to time. But I got to say, it is a good work. Amen. And at the end of the day, even on my lowest day, my most depressed day, my most whiny day, well, I'm just going to quit. And I've had those days. Hope I don't break your heart. I hope I don't make you insecure. It's just the truth. I've had those days. I can't lie about it because my wife's here. If she wasn't here, I could. <laughs> but even on those worst days, after I process through my humanity, at the end of the day, it's just like, well, what are you going to do, Mitchell? 
I like doing other things. I love cable splicing, Brother Max. I don't even know if it's a, it's a trade anymore. Everything's wireless and fiber optics and stuff like that. So, and it's like, what would I do that wouldn't just be, just make me feel like I'm wasting my life? Because that's how I felt before I went into the ministry. I know, I, I know myself that eventually when I get over my pity party, I'm just going to be going, what are you doing, Mitchell? It's almost like a train that God just never lets it slow down enough for you to jump off. <laughs> it's like, God, would you just give me a, give me a, a breaking place? And, and by the way, by the way, how often do we see ministers who their ministry ends in moral failure or scandal. Yes. And I happen to believe that in many cases, not all, but in many cases, those preachers are committing ministerial suicide right. because they just don't want to do it anymore and they have no other way of figuring out how to bail and save face. They would rather have moral scandal, people look down at them for a legitimate reason, than to say, I was weak and I was a quitter. Because everything within the nature of a pastor is, I've got to be a leader, I've got to be a shepherd, I've got to be strong for the sake of the flock. And so oftentimes they just think, I don't even know what to do. That's why these expectations... That's why the quality and the spiritual maturity of the man who's in that office of the bishop is of utmost importance for stability, for God truly working. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And let me tell you something. Once again, no pity party here, but you need to pray for not only your pastor, not only your staff, but also any pastor that you can think of. Pray for them. Cut them some slack because they're going, you don't know what they're going through. And uh, every pastor that I talk to, if I have a relationship with them that's close enough where they be a little bit transparent, God's men are so beat up today. It's just uncanny. And so, uh, show them some grace. Now, at the same token, that doesn't mean that these expectations aren't very, very realistic. It doesn't mean that we, you know, in cutting God's man some slack, it doesn't mean that we throw these expectations out the window. They are very legitimate. Now, if a man desires the office of a bishop, that does not absolutely mean that it's God's will or God's calling, okay? You can desire something that God's not in. At the same token, God can be desiring you to do something that you're not willing to do. But if you're gonna be an effective pastor, then it's got to be something that you want to do, not something that you have to do. There were times where Paul said, you know, hey, necessity is laid upon me, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. But that doesn't mean that Paul was saying, I really don't want to do this and God's making me do it. It was in Paul's heart. 
And you can tell when somebody is just going through the ministerial motions and they don't really have a heart for God and for the people. If you desire the office of a bishop, you desire a good work. Now, verse number two, a bishop then must be. Oh, wait a minute. I, I, I forgot something. If you think God is calling you to be a pastor, then focus on these qualities. If you think, because you could be wrong. I am convinced that many, if not most, of the people that are pastoring in our general vicinity, many or most of them are not God-called pastors. And that's why there's so much instability. And that's why, I mean, maybe they just got excited. That maybe there was peer pressure. Maybe they thought, oh, that's a cushy job. You know, anybody that's got a cushy job as a pastor, they're not really pastoring. Yeah, man, I get to get up and yell at people a couple times a week and draw a paycheck and go golfing all the time. You know, that's what, hey, that may be <laughs> some of these denominational preachers, but that's not the real ministry. The, the, the guy, the real ministry, some people, some people it's like, I'm going to get attention and glory and I have some things that I want to say and I'm, there's my opportunity to be heard. Uh, most pastors, they, they get up and they talk to people and in front of people because they have a burden to do it, not because they get a blessing out of it. You know, many, many times, I, it, it thrills my heart to have men here in this congregation that can preach and do Sunday school. And I, I, I love that because I, I don't like having to bear all of that burden. A bishop then must be, he must be, that's an expectation. These are the qualities that make him effective. These are the qualities that make him credible. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach. Let's take all these just line item one at a time. Blameless. A bishop then must be blameless. That doesn't mean that he's sinless, and I thank God for that because none of us are. We're sinners saved by the grace of God just like you. And when God puts somebody in the ministry, when he calls them, as the Apostle Paul said, God counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Paul never said, I was so faithful that God said, hey, I'm going to put you in the ministry. No, God counted him that way. It was, God was, Paul wasn't saying, I'm deserving or worthy of this. He's just saying, God was merciful and gracious. Now, on the flip side of that, he counted me faithful. God saw a man that he could count on. And that's what God is looking for. Now, you talk about church transitions with pastors and who churches pick for pastors, you know, you know the number one thing that they're looking for? How good does he preach? Does he entertain me? Does he keep, do I like the way that he preaches? That ain't even in 1 Timothy 3. You know, other than the, the apt to teach part, apt, that's related but so often, people are looking at, hey, can we get the guy in there that's going to attract the young people? 
You know, so often we think, well, if we just get a younger preacher, we'll reach the young people. You might, but how many churches that you know of in this community, they did that and it backfired and they're contemporary liberal churches today. Is he a good preacher? Does he have talents? Does he have charisma? So often the church is looking for that as their pastor and they totally neglect the things that God says that is important and they love it for the first couple years. I've been here for going on 16 years now, long enough to see some preachers come and go. And churches select pastors. And for the first two years, it's like, hey, the new kid in town, he's setting the world on fire for Jesus Christ. A couple years into it, eh, it's not going so well. Charisma, talent, even natural leadership ability is only going to take a church so far And it's only going to last so long. It's a house of cards. So blameless does not mean that he's sinless. But wouldn't you agree that obviously blameless means that this preacher is not wearing his sin problems? Meaning he does have his body under subjection lest by any means when he had preached to others that he himself becomes a castaway. When he makes a mistake, he gets it right with God. He knows how to repent and get cleansed. And he, for the most part, has a life that you can look up to. It's not like you're not going to see him. I'm not talking about the preacher who, you know, it's like gets frustrated after a bad Sunday and you find him in the bar Monday night and it's like, oh, well, He repented, and he got it right. That's not the kind of blameless here that we're talking about. But there are preachers who, they'll commit sins. But it's not the kind, it better not be the kind that ruins his credibility and his testimony before the people. He's got to have a walk with the Lord. And that doesn't happen once he gets into the pastorate. It better have happened a long time before he ever got into that office. And uh, more will be said about that when we get to that novice thing in verse number six here in a couple of months. I am watching the clock. All right, the next thing, he's blameless. And uh, this is probably all we'll get to here tonight, but the sad part is is this next uh, statement, this next phrase is what the the Christian world, it's all that they focus on. I mean, you would think that you might as well just cut this phrase out, cut it and paste it in and just throw everything else out of this text. It says, the husband of one wife. A bishop must be the husband of one wife. I am not a proponent of divorced and remarried pastors. I'm not. I think that no matter how you slice it and dice it, it weakens or does harm to the body of Christ. 
But this text does mean that this pastor, that he is married. I have known young men that are not married to take a church and pastor it, maybe in dire circumstances, maybe it was with the hope that, hey, this guy's going to be married here in the near future. I'm not saying that there is never a circumstance where somebody can fill in or, you know, take a church. There's a lot of things that go on out there that I may say, hey, I wouldn't do that. But if they do that, let's just wait and see what happens. All I know is the Bible says he's supposed to be the husband of one wife. Now, he's married, and he obviously he doesn't have multiple wives, right? You say, well, that's really not an issue in today's culture. No, but it was back then. Certainly in the Gentile churches... And even among the Jewish churches, multiple wives, it was an issue. So it's plausible that that's what Paul was thinking of, that he is not involved in polygamy. And it's also likely that this pastor, this bishop, must be the husband of wife, one wife that he has not been divorced and remarried. That's very plausible. Would you not agree? Now, these situations can be tricky for the following reasons. And I'm just going to give you, I'm, I'm not playing devil's advocate here tonight. I'm just going to throw a bunch of stuff out there that I've had to deal with and that I've heard about among the body of Christ. And, you know, there's some of this stuff that is certainly open for debate. Let me throw it out there before you get too more quiet on me here. What about, what about the pastor that has never been divorced and remarried, but before he was married, he was sexually active with multiple women and consummated, became physically one flesh, according to the scripture, when flesh joins flesh, that constitutes a marriage in God's eyes, not in man's eyes, but in God's eyes, certainly. What about that man that he's got the pedigree that, hey, he's never been divorced and remarried, but morally and as far as the effect on his conscience, he's got all of this stuff in the past. He seems to get a free pass, whereas there are some pastors whose Wife divorces him against his wishes. He doesn't want the divorce. And he certainly doesn't get any free pass. Now, I want you to not get uncomfortable with me talking about this, okay? I'm not setting you up for any weird doctrine, all right? When I get done here, you're going to feel, hey, this is, a, this is a safe position to stand on. It's not anything that we have to view as controversial, I'm just giving you every side of the equation because there are, there are some people out there that get really hypocritical about their pedigree. Yes, and they think that that's all that God's talking about here is the pedigree of the pastor. Man, I have known, I have known preachers that they, they've, they've never been divorced and remarried and they don't meet any of the other qualities 
But as long as they've just never had divorce in their past, they can be a pastor. That ain't what God's saying here. That is a misappropriation. As I mentioned, there's the pastor. Uh, or how about the pastor who, um, who went through a divorce before he ever knew the Lord? Way back there in the past, maybe, in his, maybe when he was 18 or 19, and he got saved when he was 30. What about that? What about the pastor whose wife divorces him against his wishes while he is pastoring? The same principle would apply to a widower. It says right here, he's supposed to be the husband of one wife. Now, listen, if I'm your pastor and God forbid my wife passes away, I am, not, I am no longer the husband of one wife. That's where you have to be careful when you view these all as qualifications rather than expectations for effectiveness. Now, I think that it would probably not, if I could just be transparent, if that happened to me, I I don't know that I could keep being your pastor. I don't know. I mean, I just, I know that's going to affect me. You know, that's like, that's like, like the guy that's, uh, that's a football player and he has one of his legs amputated. You know, I'm probably not going to be able to keep playing football here. Oh, yeah, you can play. You're just not going to play very good. That's how I would view it. There are situations and circumstances that don't always fit inside of our box. We need to be careful. Here's the way I look at it. I'm accountable for my ministry, not everybody else's. There are many divorced ministers that can be just as effective in ministering outside of the office of the pastor. My observation is most of them probably would have been more effective if they would not have taken their divorce and remarried situation into the pastorate. There's other options. You know, I've heard it argued that the evangelist should fall under the same expectations. Well, I'm not against that argument. I'm just saying that I don't see it there. It just doesn't talk about the evangelist. Now, there's, I think it would be a good thing for the evangelist to have the same qualities. But maybe somebody who is called to preach and goes through an unfortunate, unwanted divorce situation, maybe they can still preach, just not hold the office of a bishop. I think that's between them and the Lord. Got to be careful. A lot of times these men, they go through it and rather than thinking about the long-term effect on the people, they just don't like relinquishing control or they don't like having to go back to taking a job in order to pay their bills and so they continue in the office of the bishop and more often than not they end up weakening the collective resolve, wouldn't you agree that, especially in today's day and age, marriage is under attack? Yes. 
And regardless of the circumstances behind it, people are just going to see it as a simple thing. Well, my pastor has been divorced and remarried. And I don't care how you slice it and dice it, that's going to weaken a resolve among the church people. It's going to weaken it. And I've observed that, that pastors that have, that have been divorced, remarried, and decided that they're going to pastor, it appears to me that they have a much higher divorce rate among their people than those who have not. Now, I know a situation where a guy had never been divorced and remarried, but he had in his past marital infidelity. He was unfaithful to his wife, and he repented. And I have known preachers that are just fine with him being a pastor, but the guy whose wife divorced him unwantingly was disqualified. I think that that's just a really bogus way of looking at it. I think that when you view it that way, it's a, you're seeing it as a pedigree rather than a quality. You've got to look, why is it important that a bishop be the husband of one wife so that he can be effective in what he's trying to teach others to be? I, in my opinion, if a pastor is unfaithful to his wife, he has disqualified himself from the ministry. You know, I, I, I read a book on leadership. Not, this is not a financial book. It's a leadership book that was written by, um, what's the finance guy that's real aggressive? Dave, uh, Dave Ramsey. Great book on leadership. And in his organization... He has a rule that if any of his employees are unfaithful to their wife, he fires them. He said, why would I trust a man? Why would I trust them to be loyal to me if they won't be loyal to their own spouse? Now, I'm not saying that a man can't repent and get on track and still serve God, but I don't care how charismatic and good of a preacher. And you know, here's what really irks me, really irks me, is how that in the body of Christ's eyes, the guy who has the most power, charisma, and influence is the guy that just seems to always get a free pass on these issues. But some little old podunk country preacher that just gets up and has no pizzazz, no charisma, if he, if he has one little area that he messes up here, people just disregard him. I've seen it. Some of the people that talk the most about not being into Christian politics, they're the worst. And I don't believe that God really cares how much charisma and influence and power that any of us have. He cares about these Christ-like qualities right here. So a bishop then must be the husband of one wife. All of these theories, debates, and arguments, once again, I've thrown some different things out there, and I've given you my commentary on it, and that's all that it is. 
It's just one preacher's commentary. I'm not going to pretend like I got it all figured out for everybody's scenario. Listen, I have enough problem knowing the will of God for myself day to day. I'm not going to presume to know it for you or any other preacher or church out there. I'm accountable for me. I'm accountable for this church and what we do. I am going to avoid that you know, twice married preachers thing, but I'm not going to put myself in the category of judging or feeling superior in any way. I'm gonna just going to leave that in God's eyes. If they're doing some good, if God's using them, praise the Lord. But the first word trumps everything that I just said. Look at it once again. A bishop then must be, say it out loud with me, blameless. And the culture that we live in is a divorce culture. It's not a polygamy culture. It's a divorce culture. And it's worse today than it's ever been in our lifetime. It's worse today than it's ever been maybe in the history of ever. And I think because of that, to be blameless, it's something that we just need to say, you know what, I, I, I see the argument, this wasn't divorce, this was polygamy, but I don't believe in my heart of hearts that you can be blameless and effective in helping keep marriages and people together if you haven't been able to keep yours together. It would be really unfortunate that the man who went through a divorce in God's eyes and in his eyes that he had nothing to do with it. But wouldn't you agree that that's probably a very rare occasion that the man was blameless? Just because she pulled the plug doesn't mean that she wasn't provoked to pull the plug. Nor does it mean that she that she was, okay? It's something that no one but God and the people in that marriage would ever know, and especially God. So the blameless trumps everything else in that passage. Uh, I got a whole lot more to talk about. Every one of these things obviously didn't go very fast here this evening, but I hope that we said some things that will help you to understand the qualities that make a pastor effective, and uh, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I want to be this kind of a guy. Amen. By the grace of God. And everything that we ought to be, let's remember, we need the grace of God to be it, because none of us are able to be what we ought to be without God's grace.